I'm Brian Foster, and this is the Grindhouse Institute. On each episode of this podcast, Jeremy Floyd and I program and discuss a double or triple feature movie night. Each of the movies share common themes, and we'll talk about them here. We're happy you could join us for today's film block that we call Paranoia Puppetry. Trust is defined as the firm belief in the reliability, truth, or strength of someone or something. We trust our family, we trust our friends, we may or may not trust authority figures, but we all determine how much we trust those around us. What if those that we trusted turned out to be our enemies, or perhaps master manipulators, human puppeteers? Today's Grindhouse Institute block includes three films. 1954's Suddenly, Alfred Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1956, and the 1962 John Frankenheimer classic, The Manchurian Candidate. These movies all presage the Kennedy assassination, but when explored side by side, they expose a paranoia metastasizing in the American psyche as the Cold War both intensified and became less tangible. In the town of Suddenly, nothing could possibly go awry, not since the days of the gold rush at least. Yet one day, strangers claiming to be federal agents are allowed into an unsuspecting and trusting family's home. A home that offers both great supper as well as a sniping advantage to anyone handy with a long-range rifle. While on a family vacation in Marrakesh, the man who knew too much, Dr. Ben McKenna, befriends a mysterious gentleman who asks a lot of questions without giving many answers. Unless, of course, those answers include a secret plot for assassination. Finally, Bennett Marco and Raymond Shaw, decorated Korean War soldiers and prisoners of war, whose recurring nightmares and strange visions test their trust in their superiors, their families, and even their own memories. Thank you for listening to the Grindhouse Institute. Please enjoy. Raymond Shaw is the bravest, kindest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. All right, and welcome to the show. I'm Brian Foster. Uh, With me, as always, Jeremy Floyd. How are you today? Good, good. How are you? We're doing this uh, from a distance, a safe social distance. Pretty safe. Jeremy, what movies did you bring for us today? Yeah, uh, so today we've got Suddenly from 1954, The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1956, and The Manchurian Candidate from 1962. All of these are uh, sort of... uh, assassination uh based movies that all took place before the jfk assassination um and uh they all take place in this uh cold war context and it starts off with maybe kind of an optimism of the you know post-war america golly the president and as it progresses over that i don't know what what is it eight years like you can see that that sort of uh optimism erode as as the Cold War you know escalates and um, where it ends with the Manchurian Candidate in particular, you know that was basically what, what thirteen months before Dallas, thirteen months before JFK was assassinated. Exactly, and you know it, it gets closer and closer to what that uh, event was like. I mean, although I, I guess I have to say, like suddenly was pretty similar to like the the actual shooting the the, the window <laughs> this gun's got a heavy recoil it won't stand still and we got just three seconds to nail the president exactly from what what's the problem that house up on the hill it should be obvious to you that if anybody wanted to kill the president he could do a beautiful job of it right from this window of yours i'm sorry can you go through the years again suddenly was what year 
Uh, so that was 54. And The Man Who Knew Too Much was 56. And then Manchurian Candidate was 62. Oh, wow. Okay. So they were, were all really bunched together um, in that time. Um, but yeah. interesting to see how much of a different film Manchurian Candidate is to suddenly. Um, you know, yeah. that was like, it, it looked like it was pushing those more modern editing and shooting techniques. Uh, John Frankenheimer directed this. I'm not sure yep. who shot it, but I'm sure it's someone that I don't know because it's from that era that yeah. I'm not too familiar with. <laughs> uh, to be totally frank, I have never seen these films before. They're probably movies that I should have seen, um, at least to this point. I'm going to be 40 next year, yeah. um, so I definitely go. should have seen them. But I'm, like you said yesterday on that text message, I'm glad I saw them at an older age. Um, I can really, really appreciate them, and they were fantastic, all three of them. Yeah, and I, I, I you know, Manchurian Candidate, you know, I feel like is the most famous of the three. It's mm-hmm. uh, definitely, you know, I, I feel like it's on, you know, a lot of the top 100 lists and also the man who knew too much was as also well known i mean it's a hitch film well so. and, it, and you know it was the movie that, that uh from which k sarah sarah you know what became a thing you know it, it was made for that movie is what i'm trying to say and a great great device to to bring it back because yeah it was you see a lot of times um especially around that era those movies when kids would whistle with their fingers <laughs> you know and they would do that and i was like oh here it goes again and, and the fact that they brought that back and then it was just it was it was fantastic. Whatever will be, will be. The plant was pretty good. They they just had her, you know, singing around and like you know. And then it was also that uh, people kept recognizing her. And then, but it didn't seem like that was going anywhere because of where the sort of a plot was. Right. But uh, you know, they, they did manage to pull that one together very well too. Plus, you know, they showcased Doris Day and her amazing singing voice and just. Yeah. unbelievable the kids the kids sing and you're like oh it's a kid singing she goes you're just like oh my god hey, Sarah, Sarah. you know you you've got you've got doris day I'm, I'm you know josephine joe mckenna um who basically figured out the entire plot of the film or at least <laughs> the arch arcing archings of this uh nefarious plot immediately within seconds yeah. You yeah, know, exactly. one conversation, <laughs> one conversation, and she's already in it. You know, she already knows something's up. Now, what do you really know about him? What do I know about him? I know his name. He's sitting there. Mm-hmm. We're talking. You don't know anything about this man. And he knows everything there is to know about you. Yeah, Jimmy Jimmy Stewart was uh, was definitely not on board. It, you know, just, yeah, oh, she's just a crazy woman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're paranoid. <laughs> yeah. And uh, lo and behold, guess what? She was right. Yeah. All along. Yeah. So I, I see what you were saying with suddenly, um, especially the start of the, the optimism you were, you were talking about. Uh, you, you mean optimism post-war, right? Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. You know, and suddenly I felt like it was a good place to start in, in the sense that, like, I mean, chronologically it was the first one. And then also it had that... Uh, very, you know, leave it to Beaver, uh, uh, Mayberry opening, mm-hmm. you know, it was, that kid was basically Opie and, uh, mm-hmm. and Sterling Hayden who wants to, uh, become his stepfather or whatever the whole time, you know, it, the movie starts off in one place and ends up in a completely different place. You know what I mean? And yeah. Uh, and yeah. it, it, uh, what, what's funny about it, I feel like that movie in particular, uh, Sterling Hayden was uh, 
was pretty miscast because when you see him standing next to Sinatra, especially the like <laughs> scrawny 1954 Sinatra, like he could have just torn him in half like a phone book. Mm. It was just <laughs> broken. <laughs> him. I, I was saying that even when Sterling Head, when Todd, Sheriff Todd Shaw was yeah. uh, walking with the, uh, the um, Secret Service who had just shown up to the town of Suddenly, um, he, they, they pull into this wide shot, and he is literally two heads taller than every <laughs> right. every Secret Service agent. Right. No, he's just yeah. like this freak. He's like, you know, this he was giant. huge. I mean, yeah. it's 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 really great seeing because he was in quite a few films. How many times did he play a police officer? I mean, in the, as well as uh, the Godfather. Yeah, which is oh, probably, yeah, that's true. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think up to this point, he'd played a lot of criminals. Um, oh, right. You know, and uh, Asphalt the killer? Jungle, I think, was the big oh. one. I killer the or the the killing became uh, came killing, after yeah. this was was a, was like a year or two later. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and then, you know, of course, uh, he's uh, General Jack D. Ripper, and uh, later on in, in Doctor Strangelove, and um, and then yeah, maybe I don't know what would most people know him. Yeah, from The Godfather, being the that's how I knew him to be honest. Cop. Yeah. But, um, yeah, anyway, I, you know, I, I love Serling Hayden and, you know, his, uh, this crazy, uh, you know, gra- gravelly voice, but, you know, it, it definitely seemed like they wanted, uh, a more, um, uh, down to earth human playing that role or whatever. And not this, you know, gigantic, uh, you know, threatening presence. But they did. They did set up that he he was a military man, right? Or at least he knew no, military for sure. people. I, I, well, yeah. What I'm saying is that, like, yeah, I mean, because all the men were at that point. The, the, they were uh, all military men. The three, uh, I don't know what they were. The the, the presidential hitmen, um, being paid by some sort of organized crime or uh, Johnny the uh, Section Eight. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, don't call me crazy. All, all three of them, but but. Particularly Sinatra, the uh, the leader of the band, like uh, you know, Sterling Hayden could have pounded into the ground with his fist. You know, it's like like tent spikes. And Sinatra was tiny in that movie. Yeah, he was a, <laughs> like a beanpole. <laughs> right, but, but he, um, you know, he was actually he was pretty good as the uh, scummy, um, wiry, shifty, uh, you know. Giovanni Ribisi type uh, that he go. played in that movie. <laughs> a very uh, yeah, you know, w- sweaty, uh, desperate villain or whatever. I was totally casting a lot of these movies with you know current actors just to see what that would look like, even if you did it like sh- those shot-for-shot remakes of it. Um, just interesting. I have no idea who that would be. Well, what's funny is it suddenly was remade recently uh, in the the 2010s. But, um, oh, that recently? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I haven't seen it, but uh, you know, I, I'm not sure how closely it follows the, the plot. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, imagine uh, it's like, yeah, today it would be what Giovanni Ribisi and and uh, Jason Momoa as the sheriff or whatever. Like, you know, it's like, it's like again, someone <laughs> who would just like that's pretty good. You know? <laughs> yeah, like you know, snap his neck and. Uh, Give him the sub zero, finish him. <laughs> sub zero wins. I, I like I liked suddenly a lot. Um I, I thought it was interesting how um they actually got some pretty decent graphic violence on screen. Like there was a, 
some some heavy moments in all these movies. There's especially Manchurian Candidate. But yeah, let's let's go with suddenly for for a minute. What town is this? Suddenly. Suddenly what? No, no, that's the name. <laughs> it's a funny name for a town. Uh huh. The the town of suddenly hadn't seen anything happen to it in several years. At one point, it was a booming thing that suddenly things would happen all the time. Like that's why it right. got its name, right? So I'm I'm assuming. That would be during the 1800s. It was probably a big booming area, and people were milling through there and making money, and probably the Wild West. They had this, um, yeah, sense that it was a whatever former gold rush town. Yeah, you exactly. Know, it, it, it was the Deadwood uh, of its time, and you know, fast forward to the 50s, and it's this sleepy little burg, and it becomes burg. The, the, that's the, what he the, says too. Burg, the the perfect place. I'm a sheriff of this burg. <laughs> is going on in this burg. Have you noticed any strangers in town during the past week? No. Are you sure? Sure, I'm sure. I know everybody in this burg. The only strangers we get are tourists. <laughs> the perfect place to like have uh, a presidential train stop. All right. And, you know, because nothing would ever happen there. And then, uh, lo and behold, that's exactly where things happen. And, you know, it's funny, it, you know, the, the, the movie almost felt like it, it could have been a play. Uh, you know, it was it, shot very much like a play. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, especially there's the shot of John, uh, Sinatra's character, Johnny, uh, Johnny Barron was giving his monologue and walks all the way toward camera as he is slowly brought into focus. And it was just like staring directly into you. It was definitely a play or felt like a one, one scene or one wall uh, set. Listen, Sheriff, a man can stand for so much and no more. Why, before the war, I drifted and drifted and ran. Always lost in a great big crowd. I hated that crowd. I used to dream about the crowd once in a while. I used to see all those faces scratching and shoving and biting. And then the mist would clear, and somehow all those faces would be me. All me and all nothing. So, yeah, like most of the action kind of takes place in that, you know, living room. And, you know, it, it kind of uh, lulls you into to thinking it's going to be this kind of melodrama uh, with the way that, that it sort of slowly unfolds. But, man, the, the ending just gets like it's so explosive and it, it goes sort of folk Tarantino there. Uh, exactly the, the, the setup of the uh electrical of uh, the voltage box on the back of the television yeah like that whole setup there they foreshadowed that earlier Ooh, ooh pops ooh, popped his finger you know ooh ooh, <laughs> ooh five thousand volts ooh I, I, yeah exactly <laughs> that might uh might might knock you out of your knock you out of your shoes or something he says but uh i like how the kid calls him out on that that was a close call boy Volts. Enough. To kill you? Well, it'll probably pick you up and toss you across the room. That is, unless you were standing in a puddle of water, and then you'd be grounded. And if you were grounded, it'd kill you deader than a doornail. Will it hurt? Like blazes. You stay away from that set now, and stay away from those wall plugs. Don't monkey with electricity unless you know what you're doing. Why did you, Grandpa? You got me there, boy. <laughs> <laughs> good lines in, from Pops. I like him right. a lot. Yeah, no, Pops is a good one. All of that um, played into uh, how ripe this town and this moment was for uh, something like this to happen, where it was like, because everything's so tranquil and so uh, placid, 
and you know everyone is um you know sterling hayden was in the military and uh sinatra just served and pop benson was uh a uh you know former secret service until he had a heart attack or something and then you know so everyone's uh little credentials hey we need to come in and inspect your house and all this stuff like it uh you know th- there wasn't this uh distrust of what of what that could mean in fact it was very welcoming yeah. once the <laughs> fbi was at the door of, come on in right make yourselves at home right and and you know th- that's part of the thing that like sets this thing in a time and place that uh feels so different than now right yeah and absolutely that that level of sort of suspicion and paranoia in these three films kind of like gets cranked up and cranked up and cranked up uh sort of as the the mid-century sort of cold war mindset and all of that mm-hmm. you know starts to take hold on uh, the popular imagination and um but what was great about this one was you know it's like uh it, it starts off this this sort of melodrama uh ellen i, I can't remember her name uh ellen helen uh her her first husband died uh, in the war, and um, the the sheriff wants to, wants to move on in on the family. And uh... three years later, though, he was not, he's not really pushing his way in. But <laughs> I did have a, I did have a question though because he was super nice to Pidge when he first sees him walking down the street right. after you know your Opie moment, yeah. um, and then you find out that Pidge is the kid of the woman he's trying to get with. So I was like, okay, well now I get why he's being so nice to the kid. <laughs> yeah, he's trying to he weasel his way in through the kid. Yeah, but Pidge, Pidge, Pidge is cool. He had his moment. I think everyone had their moment uh, in this film. Um, and I, I'm sure at the time this was it, it considered some extreme action and violence on screen. Um, you've got the sequence that at, at the end that's just kind of nonstop. Yeah. With you know Pidge grabbing the real gun when they think it's still his cap gun, and him taking a shot, missing unfortunately, but dropping that gun and then. Um, Helen or Ellen gets her time or gets her shot in and then so does Todd Shaw. So everyone like <laughs> laid into Sinatra at the end there. Right, um, right. Especially after his buddy was electrocuted from the foreshadowed uh, electrical box on the back of the television. Yeah, and, and 5, man, when, when that guy uh, when that guy went and he was like, <laughs> he was like uh, compulsively pulling the trigger or whatever yeah. and shaking and, you know, the, firing down the cops and they, then they lit him up and, were, you know, the he he was getting uh, both electrocuted and uh, torn to shreds by the bullets from the cops below. Yeah, um, yeah, that that was pretty intense, and it, it it was definitely one of those things where it felt like um you know felt like violence from a different era. You know, it's like the, you know, it's not just uh, a, a guy on horseback like shooting someone and they kind of clutch their gut and like keel over. You know, it's like that there was this long drawn out moment of especially the the henchman who gets uh electrocuted. Yeah. You know, long drawn out moment of of his death and like the the violence and horror of it. Cuz it was the full round out of that M1 or whatever he was shooting. Yeah. And then they thought that you know, the people on uh, the FBI on the ground and the state police all thought that they were attacking them or getting attacked. So they're like fire <laughs> fire back. Yeah. Fire back. <laughs> it was like Jesus. Uh getting into uh the man who knew too much. You know, mm-hmm. Hitchcock's version of violence is going to be a little bit more, I, I would say, in your face, you know, especially with what, what he could pull off on screen. Yeah, so so this one, too, it it had... Now, I, I, I'd i say, just overall, it feels like your impression of The Man Who Knew Too Much 
was a lot more sunny and optimistic than say uh Manchurian candidate certainly but yeah and it, and it definitely got into some dark moments uh the man who knew too much but like it it started off in that same sort of vein of uh you know g gully gosh uh sort of all american uh, family from indianapolis indiana have you heard of it <laughs> yeah and um they show up uh to marrakesh on a vacation uh, again it's because uh jimmy stewart's uh visiting places that he had been uh, in the war and um you know they get sort of embroiled in um a sort of a cloak and dagger literally dagger mm-hmm. um but you know sort of, sort of overall it, it has e- even more so than than probably suddenly and, and perhaps it's because it's in color and you know who knows but there's that that feeling that you know that, that the movie is taking place in a more you know sunny and optimistic outlook on things but still it it has this uh interesting feel to it like the, the paranoia starts pretty early for joe who is the uh the, the doris day character mm-hmm. she's our she's uh you know at unease by the uh what was his name louis uh louis bernard who bernard uh, is exactly when they meet on the bus and then like everything about him you know he's ev- evasive with his answers and uh you know what, what i th- exactly he never he, she she noticed, and I mean, I was listening to him talk too. Every question that she would ask him, he would dodge. You want to share a taxi with us down at the hotel? Oh, that's kind of you, Doctor, but unfortunately, I have some business first. Oh, I say. What business are you in, Mr. Ben? However, I'll be there later, and perhaps we might have a drink together. Right. Um, but he would ask uh, Dr. McKenna, you know, uh, Jimmy Stewart, anything. And Jimmy Stewart would give him the most long-winded answer, every bit of information, little details of where he was. And she's like, what are you doing? You yeah. just met this guy. Yeah. You don't give you out know? this information. Yeah, exactly. Now he knows everything about you. And, and you the way that she went him. through all the points that he gave up during that conversation because she yeah. was really on it, that I thought that was a brilliant move in, in the writing of that character. Yeah, no, that's true. And And, you know, the movie wants you to believe that uh you know okay joe's just out of her element she's uh a little paranoid and then you know step by step shows that uh she's right to feel that way and then well i guess the the turning point was that basically in the in the market the next day they saw police chasing some guy and then that guy who got chased also got stabbed in the back and wanders up to Jimmy Stewart and whispers at his this dying breath uh about this assassination plot. And that's what Jimmy Stewart knew too much of. Exactly. And hence the title. And then um he goes down to the police station to give a statement and in the middle of that gets a phone call saying that his son's gonna die if uh if he says anything. So now that starts him down this uh path of trying to get his son back and uh not involving the police and but he doesn't. But he doesn't involve anybody. He doesn't even involve his wife at this point. She, he doesn't let let on that her kid has been taken. Because I I think in his mind he wanted to keep everything chill for the moment until they could f- get grounded together. Well, alone. he he also wanted to confirm everything because you know as he was right, uh, you know calling the hotel and and then he went back to the hotel and tried to find the the couple who had you the know, Draytons the, the Draytons who had taken his son back, uh, and like. And it becomes clearer and clearer that 
actually this stuff is happening and this isn't, you know, just paranoid ravings of everyone around him. You know, he's the most skeptical guy and like, and, and everything, like it turns out that in this case, the paranoia wasn't paranoia. It was actual, uh, something to be worried about. Right. And then it gets to probably, you know, probably not the most memorable scene, but it's probably the best scene in the movie, which is where he kind of sits Joe down to tell her. Oh yeah. And there is this acting style from that time period that still feels a little stagey. Um, this is right around the time I, I, that, that style starts to turn and like you get the more immersive style that everyone kind of remembers from um, Marlon Brando. And this moment where Doris Day hears the news, it oh, yeah. it really uh, feels very, very natural. And unlike some of the other moments that very deliberate but like a, a sort of a stagey style whereas that moment felt very very uh you know intimate and raw and just like you know peeled back and you know it's it's funny like as i was watching it i feel like the uh you know some of the sharon stone breakdowns in casino were sort of uh influenced here especially oh, nice. when when he was like i take a half of one of these a half right, of yeah. one of these and like I love that scene. I yeah. know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. No, I see that now now that you bring that up. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, no, I, I agree. I mean, there was a, a stark difference between um Doris Day. I think Doris Day consistently throughout this film. Um I thought her acting was incredible. I thought they felt like a real couple. I mean um, when Yes, that too. And the movie was like it was like the man knew too much starring Doris Day and everyone else. It's like she was one hundred percent the star everyone. of that film. Yeah. Outshone everyone. Uh, again, when Kay Sarasara played and she started singing, and I, I literally, thinking about it now, I know it sounds cliche, but I literally did have goosebumps. I was like, holy yeah. crap. Yeah. Will we have rainbows day after day? Here's what my sweetheart said. Um, I, I just really um, saw the, the stark contrast between how her performance in the film, which again was on that turning point of real raw emotional acting. And then um, while I love the Drayton's don't get me wrong. They, I loved that couple. I thought that they were, they were brilliant, um, yeah. you know, henchmen. Um, I thought that that was exciting. Um, but there was the, the one moment, Mrs. Drayton um, she's, she's with Hank, their son, Hank, um, who they have kidnapped um, knowing that Hank's, going to be killed and they're going to send in the um the hitman to to take him out because that's how it works you know when you try to take out the prime minister of (laughs) Of somewhere fake menistan (laughs) fake menistan exactly um but anyway she knew that that was happening and she did this move where she kind of looked at him looked away looked back (laughs) and then she walked over and like stood there and the camera kind of did the push in i mean clearly acting for people sitting in an audience yeah. While Doris Day, especially in that scene, uh, when she finds out about Hank, that she was acting for a camera and someone looking right at her and for the person that was with her. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, yeah, I mean that that one definitely struck me uh the first time I saw it and and, it, and watching it again um the other day, you know, it, it uh it doesn't lose any steam. It it's it's still uh it almost feels like it's from another time. I mean, again, like kind of like at the end of suddenly where it, it 
it doesn't feel like action from that time uh, or a death from that time. Like this is like, you know, it, it's the the usual thing to do at this point in time. You know, would just be you you, you tell the mother that uh, her son's been kidnapped, and she's like, oh, you know, hand to the forehead, faints, right? Exactly. Uh, and and that's the move. Yeah. And then this one was uh, was definitely a lot closer to what you uh, would imagine that that uh, reaction would be like, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, anyway, the uh, the the it's funny. This movie was a remake. Oh, I didn't know that. Hitchcock remade his own film. So this movie. I didn't know that. Yeah. This movie originally, like the um, the Draytons or whatever, like one of them was played by Peter Lorre in the 30s. And, you know, it has a very similar end of like at Albert Hall and the orchestra. Yep. And it's the same song. With um, the cymbal crash. And, yeah, exactly. Um, which they opened the film with and bookended or that's. I wouldn't say bookended, but foreshadowed that through the credit sequence. Right, right. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So it it's really interesting to sort of watch them back to back. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff in the 34 version mm-hmm. um, with Peter Laurie. And in that one, it's like, you know, this interesting like rough draft of, of what this movie became, which is, you know, sort of, you know, funnier and more suspenseful and... Uh, just sort of all around better uh, done. Although I, what I will say is in the 34 version, there's this great shootout at the end that also kind of feels ahead of time. It it, it reminds me a little of, um, it probably inspired some of the shootouts in uh, uh, Assault on Precinct 13, where, you know, it's just like, it starts to become very abstract. Like papers are blowing off, windows are breaking. You know, it's another like... movie that kind of starts with the idyllic um, town, the 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 kid and the and the and the husband. I'm sorry, I'm going back to suddenly a little bit with yeah. the intro. It yeah. kind of feels like that with the little girl and her dad. They go to get the ice cream, and right. you know she gets blown away. Everything goes to shit. Are you talking but about assault? Assault. Yeah. 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 Outside. I ordered of the a very... twist. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey. This is regular vanilla. I wanted vanilla twist. And I mean, just horrifying, you know, but again, I mean, that's, it's, it's interesting that you brought that up and I didn't, so the ending must be different in the thirties version then because that, the, the, the ending of this one was just so clean and precise. Yeah. And I, I really enjoyed the ending of this film. I thought, uh, the sequence was beautiful. I thought it was shot beautifully. I love that foreshortening on the gun. You know, the gun that like oh, opens yeah. the curtain. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. They, I love when they use the gun to, like, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's obviously they had this this little special on the gun, so it's got that little light, nice flare in there. I mean, it was very classic, um, you know, Hitchcock or any type of uh, a crime movie. Um, yeah. But if there's a shootout at the end, that's going to be a much different tone of a of a of a thinner. Of an ending. Can we talk about the ending of this version though, real quick? Yeah, sure. The very ending. Oh yeah, yeah. The like the last shot. <laughs> the friends that are visiting their <laughs> flat in uh, uh, in London, um, who have been waiting for them, consistently ordering <laughs> drinks and just hanging out and partying while <laughs> while they're out saving a prime minister of wherever it has stand. 
And they come back, and the thing, Jimmy Stewart's like, oh, sorry, we're late. We just had to go pick up Hank. Yeah. And then it ends. I'm sorry we were gone so long, but we had to go over and pick up Hank. The end. I was like, Hitchcock had a lot of moments in this movie that were hilarious. The wild goose chase he went on to the taxidermy. Oh, yeah, yeah. He gets his hand caught in the in the in the tiger at one point. It was very slapsticky. It, it kind of came out of nowhere. Right. Um, but I I think that's interesting how the he other would play. Ambrose Chapel that thing. The other Ambrose Chapel. <laughs> <laughs> Are you Ambrose Chapel? Yes, I am. He goes. Do you know why I'm here? He goes. Well, I think you you need to talk to this guy yeah. who also doesn't know why you're here. Yeah. But let's get into a big brawl. <laughs> Where is it? William Edgar Davis. Help! It is that sort of like a perfect Hitchcock thing where it's like it's a, it's kind of suspenseful. It's kind of a red herring, uh, and you know it's also it it turns like comic in a way. Yeah, uh, absolutely comic. It was a it felt like a, a from a comedy of that era. Right, exactly. And then you know when you get to the actual Ambrose Chapel, and there's that you know that really creepy uh bernard herman music just kind of like underscoring it as they're getting and their there. weird piano player well I, this organ. is like before they even get in there and then they get inside oh. and then like yeah that 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 uh you know the creepiest hymn you've ever heard uh is what they're playing and like it was like almost as if they were gonna go out and uh and do the wicker man after that he, exactly <laughs> th- it felt like midsummer wicker man yeah. We're going to go out. Yeah, we've got a bunch of sticks on the ground in the shape of different pentagrams. Yeah, if this were a different movie, the uh, the McKennas would have been sacrificed to the uh, the old yeah. gods or whatever. Um, we've got the one actor who was the uh, the hitman in this one, the marksman, actually, that they hired, yeah. who was also in Manchurian Candidate. Yeah. What what a casting job on that guy to find that face. I, I kind of forgot about that that connection right but like so that guy uh his name was what uh reggie nalder that's correct yeah i i totally forgot that he was in uh manchurian candidate and you know but he just has such a distinct face he's also uh the kurt barlow in salem's lot the the yeah, 70s e- version exactly <laughs> the 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 master False priest <laughs> right yeah <laughs> obey your master <laughs> <laughs> I, honestly, for a made-for-TV movie, that might be a good one to watch on this one. I know yeah. I, I'm already getting into horror again, but yeah. that's a pretty pretty good TV movie. Yeah, um, let's do it. Yeah, that'd be a good one. Um, but yeah, he was it's Stephen King in here. He hardly need all he needed was the two front teeth. Yeah, and yeah. and a little bit of blue paint. He looked just the part. I mean, the guy was not the best looking, but he had more <laughs> of a part in uh, Manchurian Candidate. And I mean, if you wanted to say anything else about the man who knew too much we can move on to that movie no you... that's fine we can we can move on um i i had totally forgotten that he was a part of that uh that sort of famous scene in the i, I don't know what it's like the, the the reality of it was it was the manchurian uh what's it called like operating theater yep and um you know it's the uh they're gonna drop a, a junior mint into the uh, patient from up there, but exactly but like <laughs> he's one of the. Uh... If there isn't a Seinfeld reference in every episode, I'm going to be pissed. Okay, <laughs> you can check that one off. Yeah, um, but uh, he um, he was in you know 
in the sort of uh, uh, you know the the communist international conspiracy. It, it, it was almost uh, it was very um, James Bond. It was very Spectre. It now, was. Uh, they didn't really go into who the communists were in Manchurian Candidate, but I'm assuming it was Chinese and Russia. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. I think those were the the biggest uh, representatives. Um. I, I I gotta say I'm 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 gonna say this flat out and I'll ask you obviously the same but Manchurian Candidate was by far my favorite of these films. Um, yeah. It was, it had me on the literal edge of my couch watching it. Um, <laughs> I couldn't stop. I I think visually it's stunning. I think the performances are amazing. I think Angela Lansbury is incredible in this movie. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, um, and the fact that. She herself was tortured throughout the film, knowing that the assassin that she requested was oh, right. her son, and so that was how they kept her so close and so manipulative of him. Right, exactly. Uh, she, you know, like that's brilliant. how they would uh, keep her in their pocket and everything. It, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, and who, and who was the shadow organization? They didn't ever really said that, right? Well, or, I mean, it, the whole idea was it was just you know the sort of the Soviets, uh, the, right? The, just the, bump, yeah. the communist, uh, you know, you know, capital T, capital C, right? And I like that. I, I and I think they did that again. And suddenly, as well, there was that invisible um, partner that exactly. hired Johnny Barron, right? Right. I, you know, it's funny in uh, the two Sinatra movies you get to see sort of the motivations of the assassins or the conspirators, you know, they're pretty well outlined, uh, you know, in the man who knew too much, um, sort of the reason they're killing this guy, you know, it's like, there's some Baron who wants to take his place. You know, it's like, it's not super clear and you know, it's not super important, I guess either, but it's, they definitely go into him a lot deeper in the, the Sinatra movies. So there was a remake of this one uh, with Denzel Washington, right? Um, right, as I think forty years after, I think two thousand two. Yeah, I think Jonathan Demme. Did Jonathan it too Demme directed right? it. Yeah, um, and I and I read a little bit about that. Now that seeing this, I I would like to see that because they updated it to the I believe the Persian Gulf War. Okay, right. I, yeah. I might be wrong. I, I but that would make sense, right? Because it was two thousand two, and it's like ten years after. Uh huh. Right. I mean that that sounds about right. Um. Anyway. Um. So I I'd like to see that. Um. And I, I guess uh Bennett Marco, um, is played by Denzel. So Sinatra's part is Denzel. Uh-huh. Um. And Lee Schreiber plays the Raymond Shaw. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> Have you you haven't seen the remake? No. No. Okay. I, yeah. I, I mean yeah. I, I love this movie too much, and I I wouldn't. Oh, want to, I probably wouldn't want to watch it. But like. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean. So I guess I'll ask you. I mean, do you have a favorite of these three? I mean. We we could still talk about the film. I just sure. it's, it's yeah no. I mean it's definitely the Manchurian Candidate is the you know it's it's a a classic for a reason and you know it's it uh, it totally lives up to that reputation and absolutely you know what what was so nuts is that this is the third movie that Frankenheimer directed uh, that came out in '62. Third movie that came out in the same year that he directed. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what that meant for production, you know, but he, so he had a movie that came out in 61, three movies that came out in 62 and two movies that came out in 64. I mean, and two movies that came out in 66. So it's like, he just had these, like this, like 
period. I mean, the the three and sixty two is just I, it blows me away, especially what, if what were the films in sixty two? Um, All Fall Down, which also had uh, Angela Lansbury, and Birdman of Alcatraz, as well as Manchurian Candidate. Yeah. Wow, what a year! <laughs> This nation jealously guards its highest award for valor, the Congressional Medal of Honor. In the Korean War, with 5,720,000 personnel engaged, only 77 men were so honored. One of these 77 men was Staff Sergeant Raymond Shaw. Raymond Shaw was returned from combat and flown directly to Washington to be decorated personally by the President of the United States. They are in the Korean War, and... You know, that's the first title card, I think. It, it explains that. And then they, they kind of go up on this hill and they get captured. And then they get taken somewhere. They're all knocked out. The new title or the new terminology at the time was brainwashing, that they were literally right. just... What I think uh, dry cleaning is the uh, the what they called it later on in the film, too. Is it, don't think of it as brainwashing. It's more like dry cleaning. His brain is not only being washed, as they say, it has been dry cleaned. <laughs> Well, actually, like brainwashing was a term that came out of uh, the Korean War. Um, it is, it's like a literal translation of a Chinese phrase. Right. You know, wash brain. Right. And, and then, you know, it, it went from having sort of a, no instances ever showing up in English to it being totally ubiquitous and everyone knows what it is. Like just overnight. I mean, it was just it became this uh, zeitgeist of a word, based on this film. I uh, know. Well, based on the Korean, the Korean War. War. So yeah. like, and essentially what it was is that you know American POWs were captured, and they confessed to you know dropping biological weapons on the North Koreans, and the. U.S. Army was like, there's no way we would, have, we would have done that. They must have been brainwashed. Enter the word brainwashed. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. So, so that's sort of the the atmosphere in which this movie is right. being made. Um, you know, again, this is like, you know, cranking up those, you know, Cold War uh, paranoias. Uh, paranoias, exactly. And, you know, the conceit of this movie is that there's this like, international and unstoppable uh communist plot to take over america right and the brainwashing is just the tip of the iceberg you know underneath that is uh the mccarthy like johnny eislin and right. uh trying to bo- trying to book all the communists or the rep- the, the number keeps changing yeah so. exactly how many was that again mr secretary i'm kind of new at this job but I don't think it's good public relations to talk about waiting a United States Senator, even if he is an idiot. I am United States Senator John Yerkes Eisman, and I have here a list of the names of 207 persons who are known by the Secretary of Defense as being members of the Communist Party. What? Senator, Senator Eisman, I'd like, right I'd like to verify that number, sir. Uh, How many communists did you say? Oh, uh, oh Major, I said there were exactly, uh, I've absolutely proved there are uh, 104 card-carrying communists in the Defense Department at this time. How many, sir? Uh, <clears throat> 275, and that's absolutely all I have to say on the subject at this time. Come, babe. But Angela Lansbury is pulling that puppet string. Exactly, from, and then... Yeah. The, then she's the puppeteer, but it turns out there are puppeteers above her as well. And, you know, so it's right. It's all uh, 
pretty interwoven there. But, you know, it, you know, an extremely, extremely um, paranoid idea, right? Right. Yes. Eislin, um, I thought was 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 brilliant. Every time they had him on camera, he was a little bit more sweaty. Yeah, and, yeah. And they, they put a little bit more spray on him every time. Yeah, um, and man, and by how the much end, he was drenched. Did he uh, look like the sort of uh, Vice President Nixon? Uh, well, from that which time, which is interesting because this is this is sixty two. So the, right, is, Kennedy is in the White House, but you know, um, right. Was, you know, Nixon was Ike's VP, and then he ran against Kennedy, and like it was like that, you know, that supposedly the it was like the first televised debate, and it's like you know exactly. Nixon's Didn't sweaty shave. upper lip or whatever. Yeah. Like they put <laughs> some sort of him in. they said there was some product at the handsome a Jack. product at the time. Yeah, you just put on this, it would cover up your four uh, your your five o'clock shadow, uh, and he's okay. like, I don't I don't have time to shave. I'm like they should have. Yeah, exactly, and and I had I had the Nixon vibes the whole time. Clearly, there was uh, matching visuals um, with those that that were probably from the time of any news reporting or any any coverage of that. Um, you you could feel it, you know. Yeah, how, how um, great was that press conference where uh, uh, the what one? The press conference oh, where yeah. um, Sinatra was kind of uh, being the liaison for that uh, Pentagon brass guy, and then the very thinly disguised McCarthy uh, stand-in, Johnny Island stood up. But the, the camera sort of whips over. We see it playing on the television. And, you know, we see Angela Lansbury kind of like hovering over it the whole time, making sure he uh, stays on script. Right. Moments like that, like it, it kind of, again, is moving out of the very stage play, one-room yes. setting, uh, you know, uh, theatrical idea of what suddenly was to more this is a lot more verite this is a lot more documentary there's handheld in it you know obviously there's a lot of things that are um very clearly staged and like you know the the milk pouring out of the the <laughs> the the carton the, the gunshot yeah it, it would just you know very t2 right that, and then uh absolutely that's <laughs> That was absolutely. That was a great call. I can't believe I didn't even catch that. But but you know, there's a bunch of things like that that are that yeah. are um, very you know sort of mechanically built and whatever. Mm-hmm. But there are also interspersed. There are these moments that uh, feel almost documentary. Like it, you know, it, it's it's like Most the, of the interviews uh, or the times of uh, d- oh direct cinema. Right. It's like where the camera is just kind of a fly on the wall, watching without commentary, and 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 that that press conference. For a lot of it, while we were sort of seeing the TV, you know, seeing Island in the background, uh, uh, Lansbury in the foreground, it had that very, uh, you know, direct cinema, you know, look and feel to it, like very documentary-esque, mm-hmm. you know, which also, you know, this movie is the sort of starkest uh, of the three, the most for- foreboding and everything. And, and part of it is because of it's sort of that, that, you know, cold direct cinema style in certain m- moments. You know, it has that almost documentary feel to it. You know, despite the fact that there's a, a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, the the garden party scene where it's like the, the camera turns around 360 and uh, and it keeps changing, like who's on stage and who's in the audience. And, you know, the only thing that sort of remains the same are the, the soldiers uh, that are, you know, just like bored out of their mind <laughs> and you know they're dead on their feet uh it's like you know 
Hand me that pistol. Yes, ma'am. Like, uh, shoot little Jimmy. Uh, through the forehead, please. Like. <laughs> shoot Bobby Raymond. Through the forehead. Yes, ma'am. What blew me away by that, and I think that's when I texted you the uh, mind-blown emoji um, watching it, was um, the fact that all of the soldiers who are under this conditioning, yeah, they see Dr. Yen and the rest of the group as a, a big garden party full of African-American women. Well, it, they did once it was from the, the black soldier's perspective. Right. And, 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 okay. when, he, when he was remembering so it, everyone, that's, that's how he saw it. And like when everyone individually Marco saw remembered own. it, he saw it differently. How did Mark, did they ever show how Marco saw it? Yeah. So th- I think the first time we see it, it's, uh, we're in a garden party in New Jersey and it's, it was pretty much all white women there. But when we see it from the, the black soldier's perspective, you know, when he wakes up screaming. Right. From his perspective, it was. You know, all sort of you know, black church ladies, uh, and brilliant. It had that that different perspective on it, which was yeah, you're right. It was like it was really cool, and it, it, it was very subjective, right? Absolutely. Uh, that's exactly when my head went off the rails. And <laughs> they also, I mean, we had a strangulation on screen. We saw a man die from strangulation, and then we see a little. Timmy or whatever the guy's yeah. name that was sitting in the back there, Boyd. What, what would you say his name was? He was he was our mascot. Yeah, his mascot. He's just just really nice looking kid. Uh, again, uh, like it sort of takes that archetype of the the Opie that that like yeah. kid from Suddenly and just blows his head off. Right, and and <laughs> graphically blows his head off. There's yeah. blood everywhere, yeah, and like, that's when chunks Sinatra of brain went. like splatter against that like painting of uh, of Stalin or whatever. Yeah, yes. And it, it you know blows the kid across the room as like this chair goes flying. It's like mm-hmm. you know that was one of those those moments where I was like, "Oh, hello. This is uh this is not the movie I thought it was." <laughs> like not at all. Um it it had a, a feeling um to me of the prisoner. Um not not knowing exactly where you are throughout the entire right. piece. What was so uh exciting about this is like the uh, you know that how everyone had that uh what did you think of raymond shaw raymond shaw is the kindest bravest warmest most wonderful human being i've ever known in my life right so what i thought was they were going to use the what do you think of raymond shaw as the trigger but it ended up being the queen of diamonds mm. which is actually the title sequence of the film oh right right yeah and it was like those old motion graphics they probably animated something by hand um, of the Queen of Diamonds with the credits rolling over it. And I'm like, that's got to be something. Um, I love the the use of the loaded deck. Um, yeah. You know, pick a card, any card. Um, but also, I have a question. Because mm-hmm. Eugenie, Janet Lee's character, she does... Is she Bennett Barco's operator? You, you know what's funny? I... Every other time, every other time I watched it, I just thought it was a um, sort of a rushed love story, like meet cute type thing. But this time watching it, it it was like, oh wait a minute, yeah, maybe uh, maybe this isn't either a such a easy coincidence where you know extremely disturbed and sweaty Frank Sinatra like knocks over a table, has trouble lighting 
cigarettes and they drop in his drink and he just goes out and stands in the in between two cars and he's out there just like you know sweating and smoking and like you know a total wreck and it's maybe not just that uh she's falling head over heels for this uh complete shell of a man <laughs> like and maybe maybe there's a, a a more paranoid reason why she's with him and i i had that thought watching it this time that i had just sort of like glossed over the past couple of times because you know it maybe love stories in that era they they skip some details and because they end up together they sure they... And, and and it's like well you know oh maybe it's just uh you know old blue eyes is is, is uh, too irresistible even if he's like uh completely exactly. falling apart ttsd <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah and she's like leaving her fiance to be with this guy and like right <laughs> you know all this stuff i didn't say i was married right <laughs> Right, but watching it this time, I it it sort of struck me that hey, maybe there's something else here. Now it it's obviously it's never explained, but you know, she's um seems to have constant vigil over him. So you know, yes, a handler. Or... Don't they play solitaire? Isn't there a moment where they are playing solitaire? Yes, because th- that's where he sort of explains the the force deck thing. Well, that yeah, but I thought that that was a different. Yeah, maybe I'm well, just Well, and then the he moments. does the false uh, the, the force deck for Raymond. Mm-hmm, right. And they actually play to try and uh, you know break him out of it. Uh, I liked how um, every time he'd see another queen of diamonds, it was like he was breaking more of those bonds, as he called it, or those right. ties. Those He's links. Like, there's links. Yeah, they're breaking your links. It's over. The links. They're beautifully conditioned links are smashed we're breaking your links <laughs> i thought that was great and it was a nice uh, visual for me to you know put that into perspective yeah it's funny um you know everybody's great in this uh you know obviously angela lansbury uh steals the show uh, in a lot of ways but man how great was lawrence harvey in this and just how like you know just uh heartbreaking and tragic was oh his story <laughs> oh my god <laughs> you know just like it's like he was preconditioned for brainwashing with his like you know his the horrible uh you know mental strain he was under with his his mother for his whole life and uh her control over him and before she had absolute control over him yeah yeah exactly before uh before sort of the what is it called the beautifully constructed links um even before that like there was a, a different type of psychological hold she had right and you know, you you take that, you take his sort of like loveless, uh, you know, uh, desperate, empty life, uh, and then and they said that flat out. He was he was loveless, right? Or, yeah, and, and he's like, I know I'm not lovable, and you know all that lovable. kind of stuff. <laughs> but you know, you you take all of that, and then you have the other other senator. What was his name? Um, Thomas Jordan. Yes, exactly. So Jocelyn was Senator Thomas Jordan's daughter, who was well in love with Raymond. Yeah, exactly, and, and they were you know, in love with each other. You you saw these like brief glimpses of like, you know, before he went off to the war, yeah, what their could life could have been like after they got married for that brief amount of time. That there was these two little pockets of story where it's like, oh look, he's happy, and you know he he can get A away few from his bright mother, and he can have this dark life. Yeah, and then uh, and then it just all comes crashing down uh, with this and the you know this tragic form, and. All of that, you know, it's just, it's, uh, you go from uh, this guy who, you know, it kind of makes your skin crawl because he's just so cold and remote to peeling back those layers and finding out 
about how uh, sort of uh, tragic uh, his situation was. And then <laughs> to, to where it, it uh, ends up going in the end where he, you know, kills uh, Senator Thomas Jordan. He's like, what's that in your hand, boy? That's right. Pistol, so like under, under that influence of, well, at this time it was Angela Lansbury, his operator. Yeah. I think we've found out now that his mother is the operator at that time in the story, too. Um, yes, uh-huh. she sent because then she needs to explain to him um, that she was tied to him because he's her son. Um, whoever she's working with, this group, this communist group, keeps her in their back pocket just based on the fact that she's this guy's mother, and she has to send this robot out to go kill people, assassinate right. people, um, and the fact that he. Kills Senator Thomas and without any hesitation kills Jocelyn and doesn't even know it until much later when he's visited by Ben Marco. Right, um, right. And that's when that's when we do the whole loaded deck solitaire and he breaks those links, right? No, exactly. And then in between sort of the major set piece assassinations, um yeah. it is when Angela Lansbury, I what was her name? Uh, Eleanor. You know, she had that really uh, bone-chilling speech. That's the one. It's like, during this part of the, the candidate's speech, when he says X, Y, and Z, you're going to shoot him. And then... Repeat after then, me. Uh, Iceland Johnny will lift him up, and we've crafted this speech for 10 years, the most rousing speech I've ever heard. And, like, <laughs> you know, that whole thing. And then, and, you know, her uh, <laughs> other secondary speech to him about how the handlers, you know, made him the assassin and like ruined his mind. And, you know, how she's going to get revenge is very Shakespearean. Very and, much so. You know, it was, it was just like uh, mesmerizing, like watching Angela Lansbury in that. I told them to build me an assassin. I wanted a killer from a world filled with killers, and they chose you because they thought it would bind me closer to them. But now we have come almost to the end. One last step. And then when I take power, they will be pulled down and ground into debt for what they did to you. And what they did in so contemptuously underestimating me. There were there were there were moments that they um, even the most evil person had to be somewhat humanized. It, it did bother her that her son was who she needed to work with, but it still didn't get in the way of her f- um, finishing what she needed to start and finish. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was interesting that she, you know they kind of humanized her as a mother there in that scene, even though she was still a killer. Um, but in the man who knew too much, we had the Draytons, and Mrs. Drayton was not happy knowing that you know, little Hank was going to have to die and she really showed some emotion there. And yeah. so I thought those were two similar uh, plot beats in those two films. Those yeah, stuck that's out true. Like, like they, um, unlike maybe suddenly where, uh, there's not much to the Frank Sinatra character. He's just crazy and loves to nut. kill. Yeah. Uh, he won, he won a silver star <laughs> for being a fucking nut apparently. Right. Uh, you know, in, in this one they had, uh, you know, some really, interesting and complicated um or in, in both man who too much and manchurian candidate they, they had these you know you're right they, they had another layer to uh both the the emotions and the the motivations of the 
the main villains. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, then we get to the, sort of the climax at that uh, convention, and uh, you know, he's supposed to take out the uh, the nominee, and he you know takes out Johnny and his mother. Uh, instead, graphic kill again. Again, graphic kill. Man, yeah, how forehead shot? How uh, just like jaw dropping was Angela Lansbury's death? Like the way her like knees buckle and she Blew just like out falls of the chair, down. Basically. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Like, again, it wasn't. It wasn't the sort of like cowboy gut clenching and like no, no, no. Like full over. Not this movie. This, this movie was. This movie was a director trying to get get real with with violence i think but also it, uh, be very stylized at the same time it yeah. had in my opinion a black and white manga or graphic novel feel uh, especially uh-huh. when you know the little with opie gets shot um in the uh <laughs> yeah the raisinette yeah, yeah. or the, sorry the junior mint area yeah. um that's, that's funny they were calling it the junior mint area um anyway but when he gets shot like there was that big spurt of blood it reminded me kind of a t- tarantino it's just like too much yeah you know like it might not be like that but um the 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 hole through the head, the forehead from Senator Island, I I literally was, oh, I made a, I made a noise like out loud, like, oh, my God, you know. And then when Lansbury gets it and then when he shoots himself, yeah, I was like, I guess that's the only way that this character's arc can end. You couldn't have stopped them. The army couldn't have stopped them. So I had to. I mean, he he had one last fight in him, right, to get past that conditioning, to, to, to destroy his operator and to destroy... Island, who was, you know, the, well, no, he's the puppet behind the whole thing, but Lansbury, who was the mastermind yeah. behind it, right? Or at least that conduit. Uh, I wonder what happened to Dr. Yen Lo. Do we know what happened to Dr. Did I miss that scene? No, they they kind of never go back to is him this, after a, a certain sequel? point. Yeah. Maybe Dr. <laughs> Yen Lo's grandson can... Uh... China is here, Mr. Patton. <laughs> oh, my God. If we can get... Uh... Why, why can't I think of his name? If we could get him to play uh, Dr. Yen Lo, and he's got to be 80 now, right? If not, yeah, I hope James, he's not doing uh, that. I'd feel very insensitive. James Hong. something? James Hong. James Hong, yeah. yeah. Let's see how old James Hong is. He's got the same fucking birthday as me. Aw. February 22nd, 1929. Look at that. Same year and everything. 1929. So you're, uh, you're, you're, you're up there. I'm looking good, right? Yeah. <laughs> I shaved. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. Get rid of the quarantine beard. Yeah. Yeah. No, but um, then the movie kind of has this little epilogue in the rain. and Kind of. And it, it leaves it on a very like despairing note, uh, obviously. Yeah. And it, it's funny, like, to Im- imagine the Janet Lee character as a handler or yes. potentially uh, a a figment of his imagination in the, in the sense that like like the garden party like maybe it's maybe it is the dr yen lo or whomever oh shit that one just blew my mind <laughs> again i think I, I i love discussing that part because I, this this movie is well versed in subtext and yeah. you could go with any direction you want way off the page or way off the screen no totally uh, i i love this programming of of these three movies you know or even if you did, you know, a double double feature of suddenly and and Manchurian Candidate, you know, like seeing the sort of arc of that Cold War mindset and like the 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 creeping paranoia and the amount of um, unease with, with which you're sort of left. Like think of like how suddenly starts with uh, Mayberry and then you know this one ends with hell hell. 
And like, you know, it's just, it's such a contrast. Cut to black, the end. Really hard stop. Um, Yeah, I I felt like The Man Who Knew Too Much. I I think all these films had had trouble ending. Literally ending. Like, Mm. how they found that stopping point, the fade out, or the cut to black, whatever they chose. But it was interesting to see how... Like that man who knew too much, that last funny button comes out of nowhere. You know, Manchurian Candidate, hell, and it's just kind yeah. of the end. Well, I mean, but, it, it also sort of reflects the time because, I mean, you know, right. Manchurian Candidate, you know, okay, it, it was, you know, 13 months before uh, Kennedy was assassinated, but it it came out uh, in the middle of the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Like, it, it its release date was in the middle of that, right? But because a, a year later Kennedy was assassinated, uh, both this movie and Suddenly were sort of like nary to be found for a while. Uh, it wasn't until I think later in like the eighties that uh, that the Manchurian Candidate had a second had a sort of re-release, and like that's when sort of most people saw it. And then uh, Suddenly, because it had been you know pulled from uh, circulation. It uh, didn't get its copyright renewed and it slipped into the public domain. But, um, you know, both those movies, you know, had, you know, an initial run at the time. And then, you know, because of uh, the sort of their similarities to the uh, Kennedy assassination and Kennedy was a, an associate and or friends with, uh, with Sinatra, uh, you know, the movies weren't uh, exactly in demand uh, to be, to be watched. And I, like supposedly suddenly got shelved um, maybe at the behest of, of Sinatra hmm. uh, because of that. Yeah. It was based yeah, presidential assassination. Yeah. Um, but oh, uh, there were moments and suddenly I thought were, were really brilliant. Um, mostly from Hayden Sterling. Um, the speech going over each individual assassination of, of each of the presidents and how whoever did it or whoever assassinated those presidents, none of them made it out. Oh, oh like, are, are you talking about in suddenly when they're going through all the... Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, like, um, I, I thought that was No really, one ever made really it out, gr- except for me. Yeah. <laughs> You're a very careful man. That's right. Planned on everything, huh? Sheriff, the first man they shoot to the moon in a rocket will take pains, too. Of course, that's never been done before. Neither has this. Doesn't that worry you? Haven't got time to worry. I just make my plans and carry them out. That's what John Wilkes Booth thought, too. Booth? Ha! <laughs> I'm no actor, busting my leg on a stage so I can yell down with the tyrants. If Booth wasn't such a ham, he might have made it. He got pretty far at that, though. The guy who killed Garfield didn't make it, either. Him? <laughs> he didn't plan anything. Just took a lucky shot, strictly left-handed, just like McKinley. And Zangara got the cheer for his try at Roosevelt. He had to try it in a crowd. I hate crowds. So nobody ever made it. I thought that was fantastic. Um, the man who knew too much, I, I, I have to, to recap uh, with Josephine McKenna's character, uh, Doris Day. Yeah. I thought she was, she definitely stole the show. She was the hero, in my opinion. She had the whole movie figured out from the get-go. Um, and I thought that, for the time, and you said 56 this came out, for the time that must have been shocking to see a, a, a female 
really take the lead in a film like that. Um, and I, I, I really applaud that movie for that. And then the Manchurian yeah. Candidate, I, I thought Angela Lansbury in in the best possible way frightened me. Yeah. Um, as an actress or as a as a character. Yeah. Um, I was scared of her, and I was scared of the power that she had over this this man, um, her son. Um, I thought, and at the same time, she was um, such a calculated and cold snake in that film and such a puppeteer that I, I, I think that, that that frightened me the most out of um, all the villains in these in these films. Um, and I still do believe that Janet Lee. Eugenie, um, I do believe that she is an operator. I do believe that she is <laughs> attached to to Marco, yeah. to uh, Frank Sinatra's character, and I think that that story extends beyond the the end screen. Um, and then I think it goes into that these guys are never going to be safe. They're always going to be part of this program, this conditioned program, and no matter what they do or what anyone does, these these links will always exist and they're going to be imprisoned and, and, and shackled by these links. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I, you know, obviously um, a lot of this was to set up this coup so that Iceland could become the uh, puppeted president. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, you know, that all the rest of the guys in that squad, they still have... Uh, or, or there's a possibility there that they still have the, uh, you know, the conditioning, right? And there were there were a lot of them, right? And there were a lot of them that we didn't account for in this story alone. So I think what you know, seeing that big group of men that were all, you know, part of this, or, or their whole platoon was taken, right? Mm-hmm. So their whole group was turned into these conditioned robots, for lack of a better term. Um, so this story could extend in so many directions. Here's what I want to see. I want to see the continued story of Henry Silva. Uh, w- one thing we didn't talk about was the uh, yeah, Sinatra like knocks on Raymond's door. Henry Silva opens, and then it just turns into the fucking trash can fight from uh, They Live. And it's awesome like, fight. What was he doing with his hands? What was he doing with his hands? What was Raymond doing with his hands? What were you doing there? What was Raymond doing with his hands? Exactly. <laughs> you know, God, it just goes on and on and on. And he's like, you know, stomping the guy's ribs or whatever. Exactly. God. You know, that, because that, that, that fight was, was trying so nuts to figure too. out that he was doing this, right? Yeah. He was dealing out solitary. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, you know, we as the audience knew that he was, uh, he, he was a, a plant or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, uh, it it's so funny like, that Sinatra just opens the door and it's nothing but just like uh, ass kicking from the yeah. from the time they meet. It was a long fight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it was a long fight. An- another fight with a three act structure, and it's like. <laughs> but there were there were some moments though that you could see the yeah. stunt double <laughs> in a headlock at one point. They even had a different haircut than Sinatra. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Um. We we should uh, we should we should wrap up. Yeah. So, when thinking about sort of programming a uh, a double or triple feature, the idea of like you know w- wanting to find some sort of like connection between the movies, it's it's usually easy to find two, right? In this case, it's like two uh, Frank Sinatra presidential or presidential candidate uh, assassination movies, 
And then, you know, the, the tough one was, you know, finding that third. And the, the Man Who Knew Too Much has these thematic links, uh, obviously the assassination part. It also is sort of a nice bridge for that growing, you know, Cold War paranoia that anybody you meet can just be a part of this conspiracy, uh, this, this like, you know, faceless and vast, omnipresent and mm-hmm. much more powerful than than we are uh, conspiracy that, you know, could change world events. And that mindset, I feel like, you know, really coalesces in, in the third one here, the, the Manchurian Candidate. And it sort of ends on a uh, very bleak uh, perspective. But there is a sort of... Uh, you know, humor and joy throughout the movie that, um, you know, later movies like sort of post JFK, like if you look at like, you know, Parallax View or something like that, where it is, uh, it, it is, you know, sort of grim start to finish and it has an even sort of creepier uh, perspective, you know, simply because I'm sure, you know, there it was also sort of a lived experience. Whereas, you know, with Manchurian Candidate, this is, um, it was more of a hypothetical at the time, you know, it's like, uh, right. But it was a hypo. It was only a hypothetical until <laughs> less than a year later. Yeah. Well, just over a year. It was, it was basically October to next November. So it was 13 months essentially. Um, I mean the, the movie came out what October 24 and Kennedy was November 22 of the next year. But yeah, it, uh, it, it then, sort of in retrospect, these movies take on this other tone where because we know what's around the corner, you know, seeing how, you know, an event like this would be imagined to be done uh, 13 months before uh, versus, uh, you know, nine years before in the case of Suddenly. Did this inspire um, that? Did this inspire the whole, the the actual process of setting up on a hill and getting a, a high-powered rifle with a, yeah. with a large scope there from a distance to take out a... A moving well at that time, mm-hmm. or at least a, a caravan of cars. Right. So it had that similar vibe. Um, that was obviously a moving target, but very it felt real. Yeah. And then the train didn't stop at the end of suddenly, so that was and kind of had that you same know, feeling. It it uh, because uh, you know there's so many um, unknowns and loose ends in the obviously in the JFK thing uh, assassination. It's like the. Uh, you know, the ripeness for conspiracy. And if you wanted to look at these movies through that lens, there are a lot of those connections, right? Like, like you were just pointing out. Um, But then, you know, you could also, uh, if you wanted to go nuts, is like talk about how, you know, Sinatra's connection to the Kennedys, Sinatra's connection to like Sam Giancana, like the the mob and, you know, how that, uh, you know, supposedly figured into the JFK assassination with the, Bay of Pigs and how the, the mob was sort of involved there and like the idea of that brainwashing came out of this event in the Korean War uh, where you know soldiers were confessing to things that uh, according to the Defense Department uh, didn't happen and the idea that in the sort of uh, late 40s I believe the CIA then started to uh, go after uh, their own version of brainwashing God, what was it called? Uh, Operation Bluebird, right? 1949, which uh, 
you know, and that's where sort of MK Ultra came out of and all that. Like going down that path, it's like the you know, Jolly and West and uh, sort of LSD mind control experiments that supposedly were being conducted there. And it's like the um, the vast conspiracy uh, within our own uh, borders or whatever about like non-consenting uh, mind control experiments and everything. So all of those uh, those sort of ripe and uh, paranoid and uh, conspiracy-minded ideas, you know, you, you could still find connections within uh, some of these movies uh, just because some of that stuff is still so open-ended. And, you know, when watching it, because you get this sense of the faceless, uh, you know, puppeteers, uh, you know, pulling the strings uh, that uh, we mere mortals can only see snatches and glimpses of, uh, you know, it gives you this sense of uh, just overwhelming paranoia and that uh, there are there are all these you know, forces at work sort of weighing down on, on you or whatever. You get this sense of, like, you know, not having a level ground to stand on. You're, you know, you're, it's constantly shifting and you, you don't know what's real and what's up and what's down. You know, are we at a garden party? Are we in the, you know junior men's medical theater in manchuria and all of that uh you know leaves you with a sense of unease and uh you're left with only one thing to say which is so i think i mean the best way to to sum up the three um in i guess two words would be paranoia puppetry yeah (laughs) um i'd say that like overall yeah i agree um i think between all of these films um you know, we, we see this uh, a level of, of, of paranoia, of, of unease, of mistrust. Um, obviously, we've got Johnny Barron, who is done with the government that screwed him over, most likely through a Section 8 from being some sort of psychopath right behind the rifle. Um, we've got Josephine McKenna, uh, Dr. and Josephine, Dr. and Mrs. McKenna. Um, Josephine does not trust... Um, this this new newfound friend that just seems to be super friendly with them um, on their trip to you know some exotic exotic land in Marrakesh, um, and then in Manchurian Candidate, um, I'd say overall everyone had a bit of paranoia, um, specifically the the folks that were trying to control those um, through this conditioning. I'd say that the most paranoia was seen from. Um, uh, Islin from um, Angela Lansbury's character because she wouldn't stoop to such great lengths in order to get her agenda situated right. um, without having that sort of paranoia to as a catalyst. But I mean, um, you know, from from as it turns out, you know, in Manchurian Candidate, a lot of the paranoia, a lot of the you know mystery, all those things turned out to be true as opposed to the idea of it being um, you know just in your mind. Oh, you're imagining things or whatever, right? It's like no, it actually uh, it it turns out it it was it all all the paranoia was justified. Yeah, it turned that paranoia into something tangible. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I th- I thought these were great great films uh, to talk about. I really you know appreciate you introducing me to them. Yeah. Um, I think they flow together greatly, and I really um, I really would like everyone to to watch this. Uh, who's ever listening, please check them out. Um, check out what we said, uh, what we talked about. Um, draw your own opinions and conclusions. Comment below. Um, yeah, and I, uh, I just, uh, I think we should, we should end it there on a good note. 
Um, these were really, really fun to see, and I uh, really appreciate it, Jeremy. So thanks so much. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. We will be back next time. Um, we have no idea what we're watching the next time. Um, we'll, we'll figure something else. Uh, it might be a double, might be a triple, might be a quadruple feature. Who knows? Um, yeah, but we're definitely going to be um, col- using collections of films um, based on our own own thoughts on um, on how these films might link together. Um, think of it, like Jeremy said, as a, a, a little film festival that we're putting on, and this is our programming. So um, we'll we'll come up with two or three more for next week, and uh, we'll see you then. Uh, so wherever this is posted, like it, share it, and uh, we'll talk. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you, Doctor. It's actually a rest home for wealthy alcoholics. We were able to purchase it three years ago. Except for this floor and the floor above it, which we have sealed off for security purposes, the rest functions quite normally. In fact, it's one of the few Soviet operations in America that actually showed a profit at the end of the last fiscal year. Profit? Fiscal year? Beware, my dear Zilka. Virus of capitalism is highly infectious. Soon you'll be letting money out at interest. Ha, ha, ha.